Hi, I'm Sonia Jean Killebrew, and this is Black America and COVID, an oral history project. I started this podcast during Black History Month of 2022 because I wanted to provide a platform for Black Americans to share their stories about living, working, and or going to school during the COVID-19 pandemic. I was inspired by the work of Zora Neale Hurston, anthropologist, author, who recorded the experiences of Black Americans in their own voices. My goal is to get my recordings into museums, such as the Smithsonian Museum of African American History and Culture. I'll share a little bit about me and my family history, and then I'll speak with my guests. I'm a Black American. My dad was African American and Indigenous American. His ancestors were enslaved in Georgia. We still have our family slave name, which is Killebrew. My dad, Dr. Terrence Killebrew, met my mom in graduate school at the New School in New York, where they both earned their master's degrees in psychology. My mom is Jamaican American. I'm a fourth generation teacher. My mother is a retired New York City teacher. My grandmother, was a teacher in Jamaica for 20 years and in New York City for 20 years. My great-grandmother was a teacher in Jamaica up until she got married. She was a daughter of an Irish woman and a black man. She stopped working after she got married because it wasn't considered respectable for a woman, a married woman to work in the late 1800s. Ironically, my mother began teaching long after she got married in the late 1900s. So without further ado, I'm excited to speak with my guest today. My name is Joshua Bloodworth. I was born and raised in Brooklyn and I live back in Brooklyn now in Bedford-Stuyvesant. Thank you. And do you identify as black or African-American or how do you identify? I identify as black African-American. And what's your family ancestry? So uh, my family's from Georgia and South Carolina. Oh. Let's see. Okay. So and that's now, what I identify as African-American and Black. Oh, because you're a descendant of the American chattel slavery. Yes. Yeah. And what would you like to share about your experience living and working during the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020 and 2021 and, and still through today? Um, I think it's been an interesting um, situation. I, Working-wise, I have to say that I really enjoyed working from home. I, I cannot um, deny that um, just because I didn't have a long commute to work maybe 20 minutes on the subway, but having to get up, get the kids ready, and go out to um, make sure they get off to school and then go to work. Um, you don't realize until you stop it for a while how much extra time that takes, um, the commuting and just making sure you're prepared for everything. And during the pandemic, when the schools were closed and I work for the city of New York and I was able to stay at home, that just added more time for me to be productive at my job because I didn't have the commute. And it added more time for me to spend with my kids who are both teenagers. Mm 
um, both one was a teenager when the pandemic started and the other one turned, became a teenager during the pandemic. And so it gave me more time to spend with them because obviously as kids become teenagers, they want to spend less time with their parents and more time with their friends. But when they're trapped in the house with you, there's very little that they can um, do um, to, to avoid you. So therefore, um, that was good. And then a topic that I would touch on, and it is actually related to my kids, is that I found that my kids were did much better in school, believe it or not, during the pandemic. Oh, wow. Is it because they didn't have a commute or did they tell you I think part of it was a not having a commute. I think part of it was um, that I was there to better monitor their work. But I also can't help but think that part of it is what I've heard a number of other Black parents speak about, that um, when kids are in school and I have um, to um, black sons, that there are our kids deal with micro um, aggressions and many aggressions, and also um, their actions. I think sometimes, <clears throat> how do I want to put this? I think sometimes things that, especially in the education system with boys, um, black boys, things that they may do behavioral-wise, which is completely in line with um, behavioral um, milestones, teachers see that as defiance or disruptions, and then that is reflected in their grades because um, I think it's sometimes hard for teachers to separate um, separate uh, um, behavior from grades. So I'll just give you one, I'll give you an example. My younger son is a jokester. He loves to be a jokester. And so I think when it's in, when they sit in classroom and there's something and he thinks he has a witty comment about the lesson. So he's not disrupting or taking people away from the lesson, but he have a witty conversation about the lesson in the classroom. Teachers may see that, and I'm pretty sure they did see that as disruptive. But when everyone was on Zoom and he cracks a joke and people are laughing and it's engaging the other students and the teacher's laughing because they actually have someone engaging with them and showing that they're engaging with them, then that's, oh, great, this person's participating. The other kids are responding to his joke. So everyone's responding. Whereas when you're sitting in the classroom, oh, it's seen as disrupting. So I think that was um, part of the um, matrix going on, if I could say. Oh, that's fascinating. That's the first time I'm hearing that, like the context changed and all of a sudden they saw the student in a different light, but it's still the same person. Still the same person, still the same actions. But again, I think when teachers are have 20 odd students on Zoom and they are, um, so you have 20 odd students on Zoom some might be turning off their cameras. They have themselves on mute. They might not be participating. But my younger son is also very competitive. So when he are with his friends and he's like, oh, I'm going to ace this quiz. 
and he says to his friends, and you know you're not going to even pass. In a classroom, that might be seen as disruptive, but then when his friends are like, oh, no, you think you're going to ace it, I'm going to ace it too. And so then they're racing to see who does the quiz first and who's going to ace it. And the teacher sees that engagement. It actually becomes a thing that um, engages all of the kids in the work. And I, one of his um, seventh grade teachers, I remember the first parent teacher conference that we had during the pandemic when everyone was remote because we continue to do that they were they told me um it's such a pleasure it was the math teacher in particular said it was such a pleasure to have your son in school um in the class because he's always participating he cracks jokes but they're not um they're not disruptive jokes and now he has all the other boys in the class trying to compete one to see who's going to get the top grades but also because um the girls have been getting the top grades. Now the boys are trying to see if they can get the top grades. So again, those type of disruptions in a classroom would be seeing a kid calling out, oh, I'm going to get a better quiz score than you right before quiz might be seen when teachers know they only have 50 minutes, they're trying to get the class settled to hand out the papers and all that might be seen as disruptive. But on Zoom, it was, hey, and from the teacher's point of view, as she explained it to me, it meant that, oh, I knew that now the kids were really going to sit there on Zoom and try to do their math problems and do really well because they have this competition going on. Wow. I, so I love hearing that, that the adjustment was a very positive. What was it like transitioning for you and your family for them to go from in person to going to school online? So I think for me, and I say that I am in a very lucky slash privileged situation in that um, I was able to set up a room in the house where I bought them both, went online, I forget whether it was Amazon, Wayfair, Overstock, one of those places, once I found out that they were going to be um, at home with their schooling, went online bought desk, was able to set up a room where they each had their own desk um, and their books and stuff so that they made sure they had earphones for their computers so that they wouldn't disrupt each other because they were sharing the room. But I was able to set up a space that was very much, this is where you go for work. Now, I think that was very, very useful. My older son, though, I could have saved my money on the desk because he just ended up sitting downstairs at the kitchen counter um, throughout um, the day, taking his um, lessons from there. And I realized, again, he was a teenager. He is a teenager. And I used to joke, I have cousins who are maybe 15 and 17 years younger than me. So I remember when I was in high school or maybe out of high school, when I was in college and first starting to work, my aunt would always complain about she needs a second job to feed these two boys because they eat so much. And I just never understood that until the pandemic, where literally my older son would sit in the kitchen. He was um, he was during the pandemic, he was 13 and went up to now he's 15. He'll be 16 this year. And I swear he did not stop eating. <laughs> time throughout the whole school day so I just had to make sure there was always snacks and food around but he wouldn't leave the um, um, kitchen counter because he'd eat breakfast and then like an hour later he's having a bowl of cereal and an hour later he's having this but I think it was a very comfortable situation 
um, for them. But again, I was lucky enough to have the space where even though they were schooling from home and I was working from home, we weren't right on top of each other so that they could concentrate and they knew, okay, this is school time and now I can leave. Um, now, once school is over, I can put my books away, close my computer, they're on my desk, blah, blah, and now it's non-school time and I can do what I want. Oh, that leads me to the next question. What was it like for 24 hours in the house, like in, in the morning, going to school? What did they do after school during the pandemic? So we live in Brooklyn, in Bed-Stuy, as I mentioned. So um, as long as it wasn't raining. Oh, so I'll give you <laughs> So I would usually wake them up about 15 minutes before um, the classes started which was good um, for them because um, neither one of them are hungry as soon as they wake up. So I would wake them up um, 15 minutes before classes started, which meant they had more time to sleep because my younger son's school is about 20 minutes away by train, subway. And my oldest son's school, he goes to school in Manhattan, is about 45 minutes away. So they were already getting more sleep, which meant they were rested. And then I didn't have to worry about, are they getting something to eat? Because, you know, I don't want them to be hangry or lose concentration because they're not getting something to eat. So that also, while they're getting ready and they're in their first class, I could bring them whatever breakfast I made that morning. So they were eating during class. So I knew they had eaten and I knew that they were very rested. and then after school, both of them, their classes ended, we'd say they start between eight and nine and they ended between 12 and one. And then they would have an hour. That's usually when we would have lunch and they have an hour to go on the phone and talk to their friends. And then it was like, okay, now let's get back and just knock your homework out the way. And they would do that. So by 2, 2.30, they're done with their um, all the academics. And they had music lessons virtually, so they may do their music lessons. But then, obviously, it's the video games talking on the phone. But every day that there was it wasn't raining, we would go out for an hour long walk because I felt we have to get outside. We have to go, so we would just walk around the neighborhood and look at the buildings because I've always been interested in architecture and stuff, and just talk about oh, I like that house. I like the door in that house. Oh, look at um, the designs around that house or let's look at how many cars we can find that don't have New York license plates. So it was just good for us to walk and talk. And I have lots of family members in um, Bedford-Stuyvesant who are older, who are um, around my parents' age. And so we would, and they all, I guess my parents live the furthest away and it's like a, well, I can do it in a brisk 35 minute walk. They walk a little bit slower. So maybe like an hour walk um, with them. But we would walk and stop by different family members' houses and they would come out and they would sit on the stoop and talk to us. So it was a way for the older members not to feel shut in, for my kids to get out and do something. And so it was that was what we did um, as long as it wasn't raining. Wow. I love that. So normally would your son see the, the older family members that often? No, um, normally they, we always try to visit my parents once a, um, 
weak. But like my my parents' um, siblings and then cousins of my parents who all around because there's so many of us. But no, we will only see each other like we would probably see each other this weekend at Easter. We'd see each other at Christmas. We in the summertime, people are throwing different barbecues, so you would see them there. But no, they would never see them as often as we did during the pandemic, during like the week, just because, again, between um, going to work, going to school, knowing you have to get home and do um, homework, after school programs, music lessons, they just wouldn't have had the time to see them as often. But during the pandemic, they actually got to see them a lot more. Oh, I love that. Oh, and I was curious, did you go grocery shopping or did you order groceries? So when the pandemic first started, I ordered um, groceries because, again, when it first started, no one knew how transmissible it was, what you needed to do. So, you know, you would use Instacart, order groceries in, they'd leave them outside, you put on your mask, you get your gloves, you'd have your Clorox wipes or your spray Clorox and your paper towels to wipe everything down. But I would say about um, six months, if not earlier than six months, maybe three months into the pandemic, when it seemed like um, all the information was saying that as long as you wear a mask and there are not too many people in the store, you can go in. I would wake up early in the morning and go um, food shopping and then come home and wipe everything down. because again, with, um, and don't get me wrong, I love the fact that you have Instagram and things like that where you can order fresh direct, all those things. But it's sometimes they don't have exactly what you need or what you want. Uh, when you go online and you're like, okay, now I have to try to think of something to substitute for this. Whereas when you can go to the supermarket, you can literally say, this is what I want. Let me get that. So I, did use Instacart at the beginning of the pandemic, but once I felt it was safe enough to go to the supermarket, I much more preferred going to the supermarket because it was more effective for shopping for everything that I would know to keep these endless bellies (laughs) that they were um, fed um, throughout um, the pandemic. I love that. Yeah, that seems to be a trend in people I've spoken to. They also started using Instacart early in the pandemic and then slowly transitioned to buying groceries in person. Uh, Are there any memorable stories that you'd like to share about living and working from home those two years? Um, No, none that I haven't shared already. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I said, I just really enjoyed walking with my kids and um, being able to tell them, um, we had a lot more time to talk because when you're walking for an hour or whatever, back and forth, you're just talking about all. So you get to really know people when you just walk with them and you have no set specific agenda. Um, I would say in terms of working, I think, again, that I was infinitely more productive because, again, I think I was I worked I had worked in private practice at um, law firms and the likes, and there the idea is that you're on call twenty four hours a day. I was um, because you were on call whenever your clients want you. Once I moved into working for the city, I was doing the same type of legal work, transactional legal work, but the expectation was that 
you have a certain amount of hours that you work um, at the um, that you work during the um, week, and you do it in the office. And usually, when you leave the office, for the most part, you're not checking emails or anything until you get back to work the next day. And but because I was working from home. It wasn't a problem for me to check emails um, after I would normally work them. So I think I was much more productive because if I got a message on Teams or a message on, um, or I saw a message on my Outlook, normally what you do is you wait till you get to work the next morning and you sign into your computer and you do on it. But since you're working from home, I'd say, oh, well, that's going to take me 15 minutes. I'll just bang that out. Um, right now. So I actually think working from home made me and I think a number of other lawyers that I worked with um, who work for the city much more productive because we were, which might have, might be a bad thing because we were working longer hours because we didn't have that hour commute or so back and forth to the office. We were willing to give that work to the city. It didn't seem like a big deal. And are you still working from home in 2022? Yeah. No, no. We went back, I believe it was starting in May of 2021. We went back one day a week. Um, and then starting in September of 2021, since I work for the city, we went back full time. So I'm in the office five days a week now. Oh, so are you, do they still have the mask mandate or has that ended? You know, I am not sure um, because, and no, in the sense that when I started, there was definitely the mask mandate that unless you were in your own private space, you had to wear a mask. So if you sat in like a bullpen or you're walking to the, the hallways in the bathroom, you had to wear a mask and you didn't, um, and if we weren't, um, I don't know if we weren't allowed or weren't encouraged. I think we weren't allowed to actually use conference rooms and things like that. We weren't supposed to gather. Um, but I think with since sometime in the last two or three weeks, I think they might have gotten rid of the mask mandate. Um, well, I'm unsure about that because I believe that I read something that the, the mask mandate is no longer there, but everyone still wears their mask in public spaces. So that's why I'm unsure. I always have on my mask. Everyone I see around me always has on their mask. But I think for the most part, but I think the city might have relaxed the mask mandate um, for city workers at work now so that it's highly encouraged, but it's not required. Okay. But again, almost everyone that I work with keep on their mask. And are they social distancing at work? Do you have to stay six feet apart? Or um, Yeah, I believe so. Because um, that was part of coming back. They were finding out ways that people could stay apart. And, you know, if you had cubicles, they added those um, plastic things that kind of closed you off. And so I think for the most part, people are trying to social distance and um, just be safe in general. Yeah, I'm, It's a little bit weird for me or separate for me because I have a private office with, I guess, three and a half walls plus the door. So I go 
into work, I'm in a space that I just my office. So therefore, um, it's and I don't walk around often. It's just I usually it's just me going to the bathroom and back to my office as much as I get around for the most part. But from what I've observed, I do think that um, people are doing um, social distancing. And I know people are wearing masks. Thank you. Oh, and then the last question I asked, um, is there anyone who you may have sadly lost during the pandemic who you'd like to memorialize? Um, I lost a, they weren't super, so they weren't super close related to me. But there, uh, we did lose a family member early um, in the um, um, pandemic, Butch Jackson. He was older. He was in his 70s. And again, he lived, um, so my family lives all around me. He only lives four blocks away from me. But he was the husband of my mother's first cousin who we had lost some years before and um wait is it my mother's yes it's my mother's first cousin because it's really weird because he is the husband of my mother's first cousin but they were older than my mother and their kids are closer to my mother's age but his wife and my mother were technically first cousins because my great-grandmother and the mother of his wife were sisters. So it's, again, large families, lots of age um, variations. So although I thought of, I think of him more of as in my great-grandmother's generation, he was actually technically my mother's generation. Um, but yes, no, we sadly lost him. He um, passed at home. And so we um, sadly lost him because of the pandemic. Oh, sorry to hear that. Oh. Yeah, there was a lot of loss over those two years. It was. And again, it's kind of like a lot of people were saying, we didn't have the experience of him being in the hospital and not being able to see him because he did um, pass at home. But the idea of not being able to really have a funeral and the likes where people could show up because it was early in the pandemic where... Um, you couldn't really have large funerals, church services, or anything like that. So that was sad. Oh, no. So they, so there was no, that's so sad. So he wasn't able to have a, a funeral, or was it only the family? Yeah, it was. So he has um, four kids, um, and then they have siblings and their own kids and the like. So the actual funeral, at the funeral home and at the grave site was limited to um, just close family members. So it was just basically his kids and he has a sister who's still alive. So it was his sister and her family and then the kids, his kids and their families were the only ones who were allowed to attend. Right. And I'm not even sure all of them were allowed to attend um, at least the indoor portion because it would have been more than 10 of them. And if I'm remembering correctly, New York wasn't really allowing funerals with more than 10 people inside a space. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Because I remember a cousin passed away and yeah, none of us could go. And, and it was so early that they weren't even streaming funerals at that point. Correct, this one wasn't streamed either. 
Yeah. yeah. Wow. Thank you, Joshua. And I always like to say how I know the people that I'm interviewing. And I know you through Prep for Prep. You were one of the advisors, I think, when I was there. I couldn't possibly. What contingent were you? Six. Were you? Yeah, well, seeing how I'm like contingent 26, because I'm not claiming to be older than 21 years old, I couldn't have possibly have been. No, you're right. I was an advisor because I'm contingent too, and I was an advisor for your um, contingent. <laughs> but I'm claiming to be contingent 26, 21 years old. And no matter what anyone says, they're telling fake news if they tell you anything different. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> But yes, I was one of your advisors when you were in the program, because I I believe I did from four to eight. I was an advisor for um, contingents four through eight. Those were the years that I was an advisor. So yes. I love that. I I know. And we don't age. So I totally support you. you you're contingent 26. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I totally support that. <laughs> Wow. Well, thank you. I'm so glad that we got to have this mini reunion. Um, I look forward to an in-person gathering once I'm able to get these recordings into a museum that we can all meet up in real life and, and talk. Oh, no, it would be amazing. Are you in New York right now? or? Yeah, Queens. Okay. What part yeah. of Queens? Jamaica. I, I'm fascinated that you're saying you're in Jamaica because... You know, I work in my work for the city is with uh, affordable housing, and I am working on several projects that are going up in Jamaica right now. And before that, in my private practice, I used to represent a client that also did lots of development in Jamaica. So I would go up for um, along Sutphin, Sutphin, I never know how to pronounce it. Yes. Avenue um, for ribbon cuttings and the likes where the Long Island Railroad is, where there's the E and the J and the F and all of them. I represent people on, an, before I was at the city, on a number of projects there. And now from the city side, I'm representing you on a number of affordable projects that are going up all around um, that part of Jamaica. It would be interesting to find people who um, traveled places in the city before the pandemic, and then um, to see their reaction to certain neighborhoods after the pandemic, because um, even when other industries were shut down, the real estate industry had an exemption. So they continued to work throughout the pandemic, they had an exemption to continue work. So I think there are people who might have been traveling to Jamaica for work um, in March 2020 who then didn't have to travel there anymore. And then once they start traveling there to work again, when they go in person, I think they will be surprised because I don't think people realized, I realized it because I was closing the deals and I was very busy throughout the pandemic, how much real estate activity continued to happen throughout the city. And so it's trend. When you're going there every day, you might not notice it, but you take a year and a half, two years off, then you come back, you're like, wait, what are these five new buildings doing here? So it'd be interesting to see how people react to that, because I do think that the city, where we think of the city as shutting down and um, becoming much slower in a lot of ways it did. The continual physical transformation of New York City did not slow down 
um, during the pandemic, at least from the affordable housing point. So, and those actually, when you build new projects, you leave, you physically alter the neighborhoods that they're in. So the city continued to evolve and change, even if we didn't see it um, on a daily basis. Thank you very much. And if you need any follow-up, please let me know. Oh. Um, I'm so fascinated at what you're doing. And I think it's very, very important to um, collect our stories and have our stories for posterity. So I, I, so as soon as you told me about it, I definitely wanted to do it because I think you, what you're doing is very important that we have to have an archive of our stories because it's very easy for us to get um, lost in the shuffle or just be seen as statistics and um, behind. And that's one of the things that I always felt really bad about during the pandemic. Like I think obviously we were um, horrified at the number of people who died, but I'm like, but remember each one of those people who died was a full-fledged human being with life and dreams and connected to people who cared about them and their life and dreams. And that has all disappeared now. And so it's very important to remember that it's not just 2,000 people who died on this day. It was 2,000 people who were loved and loved and had um, emotions and dreams and connections that are now snuffed out um, because of that. So thank you so much for what you're doing. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, that's what's important to me, that people know that these were lives, as you said, they were loved. They weren't just statistics because we were losing thousands of people a day. So thank you. Well, I'll, yeah, I will, I'll send you the link and I look forward to us all gathering together um, in the future. Yep, we'd love to do it. Okay, enjoy the rest of your um, holiday weekend. Have a good weekend. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Black America and COVID, an oral history project with Sonia Jean Killebrew. If you would like to share your experience living, working, and or going to school during the COVID-19 pandemic and you identify as Black American, then reach out to me. You can email me at soniakillebrew at gmail.com my email is in the show notes of the podcast. You can also connect with me on Instagram. My Instagram account is Black America and COVID. And you can message me there and follow me to get links to the latest interviews and conversations that I look forward to having archived in a museum in the future. Thank you.